Well, good morning, Olive Branch. Can we just let's just praise God and thank the band just for uh, the worship this morning. Thank you, guys. We are in a new series we're beginning this morning called Freedom Bound, and we are back to the book of Romans, and we're going to be traveling through a couple chapters here over the next few weeks, kind of examining what the Apostle Paul and what God has taught us um, in this book, and uh, really, um, it, it's going to be talking a lot about this concept of freedom and, and bound, of free, being bound together. We'll, we'll, we'll see how this works out, but honestly, I think one of the things for me that kind of pinged in my mind is the fact that I'm a dad of four kids. Um, um, Disney Disney movies are a part of my life on a regular basis. Any other parents uh, got that in your life right now? Um, even if you're a grandparent, you're going to have Disney movies in your life. And uh, one of the most popular Disney movies of late has been Frozen. Anybody have their kids dress up as Frozen or, you know, have, you know, all those kind of things? And um, so Frozen's one of those interesting uh, phenomenons that's gone on in our culture in the last few years. And um, they, they didn't know it was going to explode like this, but it's been really interesting how, what, what the message of Frozen is in some ways. And it's been kind of funny to me because if you've not watched Frozen, actually the question is, how many of you have never seen Frozen? Throw your hand up really. Okay. I figured in first service there'd be far more than in second or third, but... Um, What's interesting is that how many of you have seen Frozen at least 60 times? No, I'm just kidding. You're all the parents, right? Okay. So uh, for those of you who have never seen Frozen, I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm just going to give you kind of what happens within the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie. And really what goes on is it, it centers around this small, um, this small kingdom where these two girls who are princesses are born in this castle. And, one of the, and the older princess, Elsa, has the ability to make uh, snow or, or make things frozen. She has magical powers and she ends up harming her sister unintentionally and so take her to trolls this is a fantasy story and all this stuff gets done and um and then eventually uh she's told by her parents conceal this hold on to it hold it back don't let it out this is dangerous and then uh, from there uh, her parents die. And then so now these two girls are alone. They grow up without parents. Um, she's trying to control herself. And uh, basically at her coronation day, she just, all of her powers come loose in an argument. And all these feelings are attached to her powers come wielding out. And they call her a monster and she runs off. Everything gets frozen. The entire kingdom gets frozen. It's the middle of the summer. So this isn't supposed to happen. People are now stuck in this, um, in this kingdom. And she's run up on top of this mountain where she's isolated herself. And as she comes up on this mountain and she's singing this song, um, all, of, all of you who have watched it several times, you know the song. Ready? Let it. Don't do it. I'm just kidding. It's horrible. Um, no, we don't need to sing this song. Because when you start thinking about the song, uh, there's something in me that gets repelled, just to be quite honest. Think of the song. Let it go. Let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. I don't care what they say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And I find it a fascinating song that it's the popular song of our culture. So popular, all of us, even if you haven't seen it, have probably heard the song. And the very lyrics are almost an anthem to what's happening. Just let yourself go. Who gives a rip what it does to anybody else? Even though the kingdom's frozen in ice, even though you are supposed to be the queen, even though there's all this stuff going on, you're destroying your own land in the middle of the summer, who cares? The cold didn't bug me. I march up on a mountain where I can have my freedom. Freedom. The word of Americans. Freedom. 
But you know what Let It Go is? It's the anthem of every college freshman, isn't it? It's a, it's a parable of our times. It's, a, I'm going to let myself out. I'm going to let myself go. I'm going to live free because I'm free. And you can't tell me what to do. I have a right to be free. And in all of this mixture and all this stuff, it's a parable that shows us that freedom without boundaries is its own form of bondage. That when we live free with no bounds, it will bind you. And it will destroy you. It'll bind a nation. It'll destroy a nation. That freedom's absolutely free without boundary is something that we need to think about. It's something our our, uh, ancients used to think about, something we thought about up in the 1940s. There's all kinds of interesting pieces about this. And And the danger is for us as Christians because we are a people who live in a sense of freedom. We've just read through Romans chapter 6 and 7 last year. And as we rolled through those chapters, we came across the fact that you and I, as Christians, are no longer bound to the law. We are not, we are not linked down to God's law so it condemns us. And at the same time, we're free from our sin. You and I have no condemnation before God because Jesus Christ has borne our sins on the cross. You and I are in essence free. In fact, some people have said so free you can do whatever you want because God's not going to judge you. Now, I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. But that's what our culture thinks. And that's where it's moved to. And yes, we indeed are free. We are free in Christ. We are free to live for God. We are free to have this relationship with God. And no, we are not under condemnation. We're not under a bunch of laws. And yet we live in a world with a government, a very strong government, one of the the strongest government in the world. And what's interesting then is the question of how we as Christians who are so free with God, so free in life that we don't fear condemnation even in the afterlife, and we are free to live and the law doesn't have to bother us, that you and I have to live with a government. How do these things work out? Should we just throw off the shackles and say, let it go, let it go, don't hold it back anymore? I don't care what they say. Is that our motto? How do we live in a government-oriented world with truly governments that tell us how to live and how to, how to do things. I mean, governments restrict our freedoms all the time. I, I'm, a, I'm a dad, and so I have four kids, and one of the most frustrating things growing up was when I was a kid, you bounced around in the back of your parents' car seat, you know, the back of the seats, and you're just climbing over everything, looking out, whoa, what's that? You're looking now, if you, are, if you are the size of a four-year-old or a seven-year-old or whatever, you're in a car seat. My wife is fighting to get out of a car seat in some cases. She's a little lady. And no, some of you guys, I'm, I'm kidding, but there's this reality that, my kids could be in a car seat sleeping, and I put them in, and we would drive to, and Redbox came out right around the time a new law came out too, which is infuriating, because you show up, and you know you got to turn your Redbox in. Your child is asleep in the car, because the drive over to the Redbox put them to sleep. They have to be in the car seat, but now there's a new law. You can't leave the child in the car for even a second, even on a rainy day. And you've just got to go inside to drop the Redbox off. And now my liberty, my freedom is restricted by two new laws of car seat laws and keeping, not leaving your kid alone, even when you can't, and they don't trust you to judge in your own judgment whether that's good or not. So you have to wake your child up from their nap, turning your liberty into a very bad situation as they're screaming and crying. Now they're exhausted and whining and all kinds of stuff just to drop a, a DVD off. It's a very interesting situation when government gets involved. they limit your liberties and they lock you down and you will lose your freedoms the stronger your government becomes. But how should we live as Christians with them? 
How do we deal with this? In fact, what we're going to do is you and I can open up to Romans chapter 13. We're going to begin to examine this. Romans 13, beginning verse 1, and we're going to follow through to verse 7 today. Kind of take this apart. Because what we're going to see is in this entire series of Freedom Bound is one thought is going to call us back. One continuous refrain in these sections is going to call us. And that is, we must bind our freedom for the love of God and others. We must limit our liberty out of love for other people and for God. We, we are to take this freedom that we have and we need to restrict it on purpose because we love other people and we love our God. And that's what we're gonna see throughout this series, that that idea comes up over and over and over again, that we are gonna bind our freedom for the love of God and others. Now, what we're going to do first, though, is we're going to see how we're called to personally bind our freedoms as it comes to our government. And it starts off here. He tells us, basically, that you and I are to bind our freedom by submitting to our government. And he says it in verse 1 and 2, if you want to look at this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And just some initial observations as we look at this text. He starts with telling us, look, uh, we are called to be subject to our government. We are called to submit to it. We are called to live under its boundaries and rules as Christians. And so he starts right off and he says, because there is no other authority. The only real authority there is, is God. And God has instituted and given these governments to be a rule over us. So if you resist that government, you're resisting God. This is kind of a challenge because uh, for us, we can think of all kinds of bad governments. Maybe some of you feel our government is bad. Maybe you're thinking, what, does that mean people who are under ISIS have to submit under ISIS? This doesn't make any sense. What, what do we do here? Well, I want to start here with this objection that, hey, our government isn't necessarily Christian. Why are we submitting to it? I want to say, hold on, time out. Rome was not Christian at all when this was written, which is very interesting. Rome, in fact, was a polytheistic society. In fact, government and religion were not separated as they are in America. They were so bound together, they considered Caesar their God. And so when he says to submit to the government, he's almost saying, listen, you need to submit, even though these people don't agree with us, even though these people hold viewpoints that we find just, just abhorrent and bad. And so what's interesting is in this context, in this structure that Paul's talking about, he's saying, just because they don't agree with us doesn't mean you don't submit to them. In other words, just because part of what your government is doing you don't agree with doesn't mean you ignore all the good that they do bring and all the good that they do support because there are lots of good laws. I mean, let's face the facts. Aren't we glad there are really speed limits, to be honest? To be really honest, I mean, come on. We, we don't want everybody just choosing whatever speed they want to go, wherever they want to go. It would be bedlam. We, we, you know, you've had that kind of a reality. We, even though I don't like the idea of the car seat laws and those types of things, they're still good in their measure. Now, I think they need to be slightly corrected, but that's my right to think that, and I can argue for that in a free society. However, that doesn't mean I didn't submit to them. We didn't wake the baby up. We didn't walk him inside. And, you know, these kind of things. And so... We understand there that scripture is telling us that there is a submission that you and I are supposed to have. 
And that to resist is to really resist against God. And in fact, to incur its judgment that the government can come and bring its judgment upon us. And so this is just this beginning point where he starts with, if we're going to start anywhere, you need to be a people and we need to be a people who submit to our government, regardless of whether they uphold Christianity or not. In fact, he'll go on because he wants to claim a, a, a real important thing that you and I are submitting because government has a purpose. God has a reason and a purpose for the government. In fact, um, that's, that's kind of our next point. We bind ourselves knowing God has a good purpose for the government. Look at this in verse three. He says, for rulers, speaking of the government, our uh, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And a lot of people just go, ooh, God's an avenger. I like that verse. Yeah. Anyway, movie, movie tip. But no, we'll set that aside for a second. Here what's interesting is this. Many of us probably disagree with this first line. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. This is an idealized situation. This is God's intent for government. He intends a government to be a terror to bad conduct and to encourage the good. That's actually the point. It's designed to be that which guides people towards the good and approves of it and punishes evil. And that's really all he just said. A few weeks ago, I was driving along. Um, I had my son, Andrew. We were trying to get to BJ's to, be, to take a lunch with my wife. It was kind of one of those special things. It was coming up on, on Andrew's birthday. And so my little Andrew was who has uh, just turned five uh, this weekend. So that's cool. And he's, uh, we're driving along and I'm coming up to this curve up here off Timiskel Canyon. And um, just before it comes to the church property, and there's this kind of stop sign there that, uh, that really is kind of like, I wish it was a yield sign, one of those ones, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm thinking in my head, and, and I know this is wrong, but I'm thinking in my head, I'm just going to drift through this one. I'm in a hurry. I needed to get to the BJ's and I get back to work quickly. Oh, naughty Greg. And so I'm pulling up to this thing and I'm getting into the California stop. You know how that works. And just kind of rolling through. And suddenly I look to my right and there's that one of those, not just a little, not just a little motorcycle cop, one of those big honking giant SUV sheriff cars. You're like, you know, they, they're intimidating to look at when they drive by. You know what I'm talking about? And I immediately, I'm just like maybe a little bit over the line. I go, and I stop as hard as I can. And my heart's going, dun, 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 you dummy. I'm looking at Andrew. I'm like, hi, Andrew. Hi, how are you? And I look over at the sheriff and he's giving me this grin like, ha, 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 ha. And I'm like, okay, I stop. Count one, two. Okay, now I'm going, you know. I do the perfect stop at that point, except I was across the line and he was kind to me. And so I pull on. And of course I'm doing the, what everybody does when something like that happens, rear view mirror check. Is he coming? Is he coming? Is he coming? You know, that thing. They're a terror to bad conduct. That's what, the, that's what they're supposed to be. We all get mad because we got caught. They're doing their job. They're supposed to be a terror to us. Our hearts are supposed to be pounding. We're supposed to be thinking $436 or whatever it is now. I have no idea. But that was the last ticket I got years and years ago. But anyway, the, the point is that you're, it's just supposed to terrorize you. It's supposed to scare you. And when you do good, you don't have anything to fear. They're not on your tail. They're not after you. They're not hunting you down. They're out against bad conduct. They're not there to terrorize good conduct. Now, 
This is important for us to know because I believe that they are out to encourage the good. Notice how Paul puts it. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct. And skip down then after the question. Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. This approval was known in the Roman time period uh, for good citizens. They would actually take your name if you were a good citizen, a benefactor to the society. And they would carve your name on stone. So did the fact that we have a lot of names today carved in stone. And what's strange is many of them we can link in certain time periods to the Bible because some of them were good Christian leaders who wound up being considered great citizens. Here's my thought. I think Christians should be the best citizens of the United States. I think we should be the most engaged citizens of the United States. I believe we should be the benefactors of the U.S. I think Olive Branch should be the kind of place that when we pick up and move, the surrounding community goes, I'm so disappointed they're taken off from here because what a benefit they've been. Versus, whew, glad those people are gone. Or, there was a church there? I thought that was a library. You know, some people have actually said that to us. Maybe you thought that once yourself. But the point is simply that what if the church was so engaged in civic culture, so engaged in our public, and our public sphere, where we were really literally engaged in the transformation and the care and the bringing. I love it. Some of you are school teachers and you're engaged every day in your job in civic affairs because you work for the government. You are part of this, this group. If you're part of the fire department, if you are part of the police department, the sheriff department, you are, and you're part of our government, you've been an elected official, or you work in the county or the city, your job is valuable because you should be bringing the good and dissuading the bad. In some cases, yeah, that may mean that you don't teach certain things or you focus on other things. In some cases, that means um, that we're going to engage in actually the conversations and be a part of, the, uh, of all of these unions and things so that our voice is heard, even as difficult as that may be. But the goal is to be the best citizens, to be the kind of church that they would have to go like, man, these people care so much about our city, we gotta write their name down so they're remembered. And that's what it means by approval. That the government is looking to put people up who do well. To shine a light on them. But they're to punish evil. They're to stop the bad. They're to end wrong thinking, evil thinking, that kind of stuff. Now, right here and there, it's an objection, right? We're going like, hold on, hold on, hold on, Greg. Our government doesn't do that. This is the deal. You're being way too ideal here. No, I'm not. I think Paul was purposely saying how we ought to act no matter what. However, does this mean that we should never resist? Never? Isn't that resisting God? What about civil disobedience? What about these time periods where you and I need to, need to actually be thrown in jail for a good cause? What about those times? Absolutely, those times should exist and are likely coming sooner than you think, and more often than you think. As our government becomes further and further post-Christian, and that means our culture is further and further post-Christian because our government is just a reflection of our culture in the United States. What we wind up with is is the opportunity and the difficulty of standing civilly and carefully in a culture that may not agree with us. What do we do with that? 
Do we civilly disobey? Do, what do we do? How does this work out if we're supposed to submit to the government? Well, Paul kind of lays this in here. Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So what in the world is that all about? In some sense, the government's wrath on us is God's wrath. But here's the difference. That's if we're doing evil. Otherwise, we need to avoid God's wrath and for conscience sake, submit not to government, but to God. In fact, the apostles stood before their government. Quite early on after Jesus' resurrection, within a few weeks, they had begun to preach the gospel. After, a few weeks after Pentecost, that is. They began to preach the gospel. Pentecost was this festival in which they stood up and God had come upon them by the Holy Spirit and they spoke all these languages and 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was the birth of the church. And as they began to preach more fervently and more fervently, more and more thousands of people were coming to receive salvation in Jesus Christ. And eventually their leaders yanked them in, stood them before them and said, you are not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. Their response was clear. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There are clear cases at times where the good that our government claims is good is not the good that our God claims is good. And when they make the claim that it is good for you to not preach the gospel, we say, sorry, we need to. When they stand clearly and very against scripture and are compelling us to obey it, we do not have to, be, we do not have to obey. We submit to God rather than to men. Now, I need to note that this is when they are trying to compel you. You don't willingly participate in sin. We're done with that. We don't go against God. We gave up pushing against God years ago. We submit to the government. We do not have to willingly go into directions that we believe are sin. But if the government begins to compel and press you to do that, which is against your conscience and against the scripture, you are to stand firm and not act. That takes civil courage is what it's called. A virtue that's long been forgotten. Civil courage is the ability to stand up and receive name-calling, to be called bigot, hater, etc., which many of you already have begun to be called. In some cases, guys, we deserve it because our language is so lousy. We use cutting, harmful tones of voice, which is unbecoming of the Christian. That is not how we're supposed to be. But we need to stand firm with civil courage. Don't give up if an avalanche of people start yelling at you on Facebook. Don't give up if a, if a whole bunch of people just start throwing stuff at you. Be kind and generous, pointing to the logic, pointing to scripture, explaining your position as patiently and as carefully as you can without entering into the attacks on individuals. It does no good. Just because your attack doesn't give you the right to attack. Didn't our parents teach us that? Just because they called you a name doesn't mean you get to call them a name too. Some of this goes right back to just being, listening to what our parents taught us, doesn't it? And what's interesting is that in civil discourse, we need just that, civil courage and civil discourse. This leads me to this final point, the one I want to focus on the most then, that Christians should be excellent citizens doing our civic duty. And I'm going to expand on this term civic duty. Where do I get this from? I get it right here in the verse, verses uh, six through seven. Because we're to submit to God and therefore to the government, he says this, for because of this, you also pay taxes. 
And many of us are wishing that was not in the scriptures. All right. So, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This were the civic duties of the ancient Christian. In Rome, you had only really four duties to do. You were to pay taxes, you were to give your revenues, and you were to honor and respect those who are in government positions. That was it. Those were the purposes of being a good citizen, of being a good, um, a, a good citizen and doing your civic duty. Now, in this case, our civic duties are different. But I want to start here before we move forward. We need to pay our taxes. We shouldn't be avoiding our taxes. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't take appropriate opportunities to ensure that, we are not, that the government's not receiving more than they should from you and things like that. I get all that stuff. I'm not getting into the nuances of tax law. That's not my goal. But you should not try illegally to not pay your taxes. If you're not paying your taxes, you're in sin. That's what the scripture is indicating. Because what you're doing is you're withholding from God's ministers, their pay. That's what it's saying, which indicates something. Teachers in the room, principals, all of you who hold a government office, anybody here who works for the fire department, if you work for the police department, the sheriff department, you are God's servants. Just as I am God's servant. He calls you ministers. Just as I am a minister. There is no sacred, secular divide here. He will judge you as sharply as he judges his pastors. You are under a greater judgment as his ministers. And therefore, be careful how you adjudicate your jobs. That you could stand before our Lord and rightly say that you have treated each person as the image of God. That you have taught what is not evil and wrong. That you have been willing to stand firm in government positions and and vote on that which would be according to his will. For we will be held account for how we hold these positions, being his servants. And that should make us swallow hard in our positions and consider carefully how we engage as much as I should consider as how carefully I preach and lead my life and how much every other minister in our church should do the same. This is a serious job, according to God. And he does not hold it lightly. And therefore, they deserve honor and respect and our taxes to go towards their paychecks. And so when you do that, consider that you are giving toward the benefit and the good of those who are serving in our country. Now, I'm not getting into the minutia of political positions and things like that. I'm just going to stick straight with the text here for this time. We can have other arguments in other places because guess what? We should. It's our civic duty. The church should be filled with Democrats and Republicans who are arguing about the good. And it should be arguing from the scriptures about those things, not from feeling, not from whim, and not from relativistic concepts. Meaning, hey, truth is whatever we want it to be. That's not how this works. But in the church, there should be room for civic dialogue with independents, Democrats, Republicans, you name them. Whatever you, uh, you got, libertarians. We got so many different viewpoints out there. Where should they come but into the civil discourse of a society And as Christians, we should be the most civil with each other. We should be able to have strong, intense, 
intelligent conversations over political positions, over questions about super fast trains or whether we should save small fish or how we should conserve water. What about the environment? How do we deal with the definition of marriage? All of this should be considered and conversed about amongst us civilly, without name-calling, without abuse, without these things. In fact, Colossians tells us, let your speech always be what? Gracious. Seasoned with salt. What? what? Seasoned with salt. So, uh, sprinkle salt? No, no. You don't sprinkle salt on your tongue. But if you did sprinkle salt on your tongue, what happens? What occurs? You get what? Thirsty. I believe that our discourse should be gracious in such a manner that it causes people to be thirsty. They want more. They want to drink deeper. They want to know why. They want to consider further. They want to t- press in, not push away. Salt causes you to want to drink. Causes you to want it tasty. You want, you want more. And we should sprinkle with, season it with salt. It should preserve in society. It was another use for salt that our word should be preserving the society, preserving the good, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That means you and I need to actually have wrestled through these things. We cannot be socially pushed around. Just because the culture runs one direction does not mean it's right. And they have their arguments, but that doesn't mean we need to adopt the argument instantaneously. Step back, think about it, ask some questions, consider the implications, work through it. I'll give you one simple example. I was on a plane flight flying with a, a, a young man who was uh, in, in his 20s. It was a good conversation, and we were talking about medical ethics. And he pressed it into, because he knew I was a pastor, he pressed it into the marriage debate. And, he's, and he was on the opposite side of me. I, I believe marriage should be between, be between a man and a woman because that's how it's historically been. And that's just how God set it up. And he said, I think we can redefine it. I said, okay, well, my problem is what definition you want to use. He said, he gave me the standard definition. Two people love each other, they should be able to get married. I said, okay, that's interesting. What if it's a brother and sister? They love each other, they want to get married. I'm using an analogy. It's an actual art of logic. It's a useful use. And he said, well, you can't do that. There would be problems because we know with genetics. I say, okay, fine. You're accepting for gay marriage. What if it's a brother and a brother? There's no genetic problems there. He couldn't answer my question. He just thought it was gross. He had an emotional reaction, but it was his very definition that was his problem. Now, I was being civil. He appreciated my conversation. He appreciated, we went back and forth. We actually enjoyed the conversation, shook hands afterwards, exchanged information, and went on our ways. But that is an ability just to think logically, Ask a certain question. See how it plays out. There is nothing wrong with that. The danger in our culture is we're afraid we're going to offend. Offense occurs when someone is, and this is, this is my opinion, and so you can take this not to the bank. This, I believe scripturally I could argue for this. But I believe our society has gotten obsessed with the idol of self. That we've become so obsessed with worshiping me and my selfie. And... You all, that it used to be, hey, check me out if you want to. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is how I enjoy it. Now we are compelling people to bow at our altars. You must accept me or you're not tolerant. 
You must appreciate me. And so when you bring an opinion opposite, if I bring an opinion opposite, you will be offended instead of considerate. Christians, we are not to be offended. We are to be considerate. Civil discourse comes by considering the other argument intellectually, intelligently, weighing it with scripture, figuring out our arguments and seeing how this plays out. Not with knee-jerk, angry reactions. That would not be gracious, nor would it be seasoned with salt. And we won't know how to answer people. This is our civic duty. Because what happens then is that it leads from civic discourse to voting, and we should vote. You say, but Greg, aren't we forcing our morality on people? Every vote is a vote for morality. All government does, according to this text, is encourage the good or dissuade the evil. Good and evil are terms that only exist in a moral system. Otherwise, we will speak in completely other terms of rights and values and opinions. But that is not the world that we dwell in. It is a world of good and evil. And we will either vote for that which we believe is good and we will argue for that which we believe is good and we will have good arguments for that and convince the majority to shift. Or we will be left to whatever goes. Might makes right. In our culture, the majority rules. It's how it is. But we always have the right for public discourse to bring our opinion to bear in whatever way possible to make our argument that we may change the majority to our position if it's opposite or keep the majority in our position if it's there. That is the right of America. Guys, it's a beautiful system. Engage it. Get involved in civil discourse as a Christian. Be involved in your voting rights. Get signed up. Finally and lastly, obviously, for all of us, don't badmouth your president. Don't badmouth your senators. It does us no good. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have a critical opinion. I'm not saying that you can't have uh, uh, frustrations. But how dare us not give someone who's earned the, has been voted in office the right to be called Mr. President, as I've heard some talk show radio hosts do. It's ridiculous. We honor the position. We honor the positions that have been given to us by our God. We may, and we respect people who are there. doesn't mean we agree. But we give honor where honor is due and we give respect. That's what we're called to in scripture. And that's the challenge that we have as Christians. Is this an easy position to live under? No, but it's good and God will make it all right. He is the champion, he is our hero and we will depend upon him because guess what? Governments have come and governments have gone but our Lord Jesus has remained and he will remain king for eon upon eon upon eon. Fear not, but let's obey what our Lord has taught us to do. Amen? All right, would you bow your heads with me? As you're with your heads bowed, I want to let you know about a scripture that we're going to be getting into. It's a prayer. And it's a prayer for our whole series. And this is the prayer. I want you to hear it while your eyes close. It says, Father, help us to live in complete harmony with one another so that unified we may glorify you. And this is the case that we look forward to having as a church, to be unified together with the same thinking in our discourse and things like that, to be civil and caring 
Even though we may not be unified in the sense of how we think, we can be unified together in our love. Agreeing to disagree. And that's what we want to pray this week. And take that, take home your insert era, your, your bulletin, and use that. For others of you in this room, maybe this morning that's been difficult for you to hear, that you, you disagree with me, you're, you're really upset with me, either because of your political viewpoint or whatever. I'm just going to ask that you'd set that aside for a second. Because there is a freedom that is available. And I want to encourage you to consider the freedom that God does give. It's a freedom that is ultimate because ultimately you can have every right on the planet to do whatever you want, but that doesn't mean that you'll be able to stand before God and be free. See, God is going to have to judge our sin. And while as human beings, we may be free to sin all we want, God will ultimately judge it. And therefore you are not, you're not free completely. For one day you will be bound and you will be put away, incarcerated for eternity because of our sin. That's what happens to every human being if there wasn't a way of escape. The way of escape has been given through Jesus Christ who bore our sins on the cross and who was offered to us as an opportunity to be set free from the bonds of our own sin. As we run around singing, let it go, we realize that the very freedom that we thought we had becomes our own bondage. We're isolated, we're locked away because of our sin. And I wanna encourage you this morning to receive Jesus, to be able to receive him and be set free from your sins, free from the judgment that God has because he's given you this way. Receive his gift and be set free. And maybe that's where you're at today, that you need to receive that right now. I wanna give you an opportunity to do so. Then you can begin to wrestle with all the other stuff we've talked about, but it begins with being free in Christ, being free from your sins. And if that's where you're at right now, and you need to receive that forgiveness of sins to be set free from that bondage that's coming when judgment comes, you need to receive Jesus to give you that chance at this moment. Right where you're at in your seat, if that's you and you would like to receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus, I want to give you a chance to put your hand up. I want to pray a prayer with you and walk you through this opportunity to speak to God. That's you right now. This, this is where you begin. You begin by declaring your sins to God. Just talk to him. He can hear you. And you can say it quietly or you can say it out loud, but you're just gonna lay out your sins before God. And after you've done that, you're gonna, turn, in your mind, turn away from them, turn to God and ask him to put those sins upon Jesus who's willing to take them. Ask him to give you new life. In fact, ask him to give you eternal life. And let them know that you trust that that has been given to you in Jesus. Now ask God to come into your life and to lead you through it for the rest of your life. And God, for the rest of us who are are not praying this prayer this morning, we ask that you would teach us how to be unified together, how to be submissive to you and even to our government. Would you please reveal yourself to us and and continue to be faithful to us, we pray. Reveal yourself to those who have prayed this prayer to receive you also, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning or maybe in the past few weeks, you have received this message of uh, good news from Jesus Christ. There's a blue card in the seats in front of you. 
And this blue card is available for you to use. And you'll take it, you fill it out, and there's a table outside that's called Connections. Just take that card out there, right where you're at, hand it and turn it in. And what you're enabling yourself to do is get connected with the church. We'd love to answer questions, help you walk through some struggles. Maybe you got some issues that you heard today that you're like, I'm confused. I would love to meet you there. I'll be standing out there as well. Love to receive that card from you, pray with you and and talk with you. Maybe you're not ready to give your life to Jesus Christ. You got a lot of questions. There's uh, also opportunities for classes like Starting Point that enable you to begin to kind of develop and answer some questions. And there's also different kinds of discipleship groups that you can get engaged with as well. There is something for you, for you to get your questions answered and to engage here at Olive Branch. I'd love for you guys to do that. Um, Two announcements before I I climb down, and these are quick. Number one is, as we announced last week, in coming up on Memorial Day, on that Sunday, um, before Memorial Day, will be the last evening service. And so after Memorial Day, there will no longer be any evening services. So if you're a part of the evening service, that's your normal place you go and you would like to still have fellowship, uh, please contact our small groups. They would, uh, they, we'd like to form a small group that still meets on Sunday nights if you still need fellowship there. Second is the uh, churches, the elders have granted me an opportunity coming up this summer for a sabbatical. And uh, that sabbatical is going to be 12 weeks. And that's a sabbatical for rest and kind of building with my family and kind of getting some good restructure. And I'm also going to be reading on some management leadership pieces to continue to improve myself as well. And so it gives me a chance to kind of re-engage my family, really get uh, connected in there. Some people have had some questions about, hey, are you okay? What's going on? I'm doing fine. Or things are, things are where they're at. We're going to have a great team up here preaching. And I'm going to have a, um, I'm, I'm just excited to see what you guys are able to do over this summer uh, as a church and uh, looking forward to, to coming back and engaging in the middle of our spiritual growth campaign. And so I'm just uh, thanking God to get that rest and thanking the elders as well. So thank you guys for your understanding too. Um, next week, we're gonna continue in our series here on Freedom Bound. And you know, there's a lot of questions when it comes to freedom and religion. Um, not necessarily should we be free from religion, but how do the religious rules and laws work with freedom? How do we live, really live out? We've talked about it a little bit, but let's, let's hone it in. How do we limit our liberty for the sake of our religious duty? What do we do there? So we're gonna engage that. And in fact, maybe some of you have got some friends that you'd love to invite to church. Great opportunity to do that. In fact, if you have your His Story card or, um, and you've got your three names on that, I left mine in my office. I'm gonna go grab it for next service. But um, it's a small little uh, card that has three names on it that people we would love to see have eternal life. I'd ask that you guys would take that card out at this time, bring it to church from now on. We're gonna pray over that and these people. If you don't have a card, we have, um, we have the host team's got cards and also they're available out in the info counter. We would love you guys to put those three names down of people that you know need eternal life and we'd love to pray for them. So let's do that right now together and then Bob's gonna come up and give you some more announcements. Father, just lay at your feet these people who we care so much about. We ask that they would be a people who, who God, receive our, our prayer and care. God, that they would might understand the gospel and be given eternal life. Give us boldness. Give us opportunity, we pray. And may we seize those opportunities. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.